bum bum bottom 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 bum
Teen Titans go to the movies. Uh, yeah, he's got a couple seeds of that. Uh, You've seen the Jason Momoa film. And I have seen the um, Justice League suite of films. Yep, you've seen all those. So you've encountered Mira a little bit? Yeah. So are you excited about this month? I can't. No, I'm not. I'm not no? excited. Straight up no? <laughs> I don't know. You I'm gotta curious. you got to bring our listeners in. I'm, I, I'm always curious about new characters. I like to get get to know more peoples. But you have no interest in Atlantis and Aquaman and all that stuff. Then. From what I've encountered, no. Oh, yeah, okay. I've limited interest. I always found Aquaman to be interesting, even though I never invested heavily in discovering the comic book uh, character. Uh, you know, I love him in Batman the Brave yeah. and the Bold. Uh, but, like, he's, like, the butt of a joke, Yeah, though, sure, sure. Which is fun. And I grew up with the Super Friends version, mm -hmm. which I guess is the version that people really uh, learn to mock. And that version sort of starts as the jumping-off point for the Jeff Johns New 52 run. You know, you know, Arthur Curry's like, I'm tired of being mocked. I'm, I'm cool. I can stop bank robbers. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, Jason Momoa, when you cast him as Arthur Curry, he's instantly... Well, handsome and instantly charismatic, badass, and, and charismatic, and burly, and burly, and and, uh, and he wears tight pants. And and I like that version of him. Um, I know there's sort of a Peter David bearded version that's also quite popular that seems to look a little bit like the Jason Momoa take. But, but they're yeah. trying to turn Aquaman into like this bad boy. Where really he's just like the Doctor Doolittle of the sea. He's well, we, a real fish friend. We, well, yeah, okay, all right. Well, I think we're both going to really discover him this month. Together. And I'm, I don't know, based on what we've read mm. already with Mira Tidebreaker, I'm uh, excited in, 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 you know, in, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to take on a new history. Yeah, they just seem like Knights of the Ocean for me. Yeah, and Knights of the Ocean sounds rad. Oh, silence from Lisa. <laughs> Lisa's not a Knights fan. I don't I don't like Knights. I don't like kingdoms as a rule. Okay, well, I guess we have some work to do in convincing Lisa that Aquaman is cool. Let's see if we can do this. So Aquaman was created by Paul Norris and Mort Weisinger and made his first appearance in an eight-page short story titled The Submarine Strikes in More Fun Comics number 73 in November of 1941. He started out as this background character that slowly grew in popularity, eventually earning him his own solo title in the 1950s. And by the 1960s, he'd made his grand appearance as a founding member of the Justice League of America in the Brave and the Bold issue number 28. Now, Mira, she came much later. She made her first appearance in Aquaman number 11, published in September of 1963, written by Jack Miller and illustrated by Nick Cardi. In that issue, Lisa, Mira was from Dimension Aqua. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe Dimension Aquia. Uh, we'll spell check that. Uh, however, during the crossover event Brightest Day in 2011, many years later, it was revealed that Dimension Aqua was actually an extra-dimensional penal colony for the Zebelian people. And the current history has Mira originating from the Atlantis sister city of Zabel, and from what I can tell, Mira is often depicted as little more than Aquaman's girlfriend or wife. Uh, although in recent years, she has developed her own badass status. And like I said, you know, when I first encountered her in Jeff Johns' New 52 run, 
Uh, I thought she was pretty rad there, and I love her powers where she can just control the water around her, but also the water inside a human body. I, you know, that is, you know, when you think about that, that's a pretty gnarly. There's ability. a lot of water. There's like, a lot of water in a, in a human body, like even more than there is metal magneto. Yeah, magneto. So Mira can take on magneto for no problem. No problem. Uh, so I think, you know, she deserves her own adventures. Um, and that's why I'm excited to start with Mira Tidebreaker for this month of uh, episodes. A Mira-centric storyline. Yeah. I'll tell you what. If you are at all interested in the background of this character, you need to read The Secret History of Mira, written by Sarah Century for Sci-Fi Wire. It goes deep into her origins uh, all that business with Dimension Aqua and reveals how Blackest Night really redefined her character uh, as we see her in the New 52 and in Dan Abnett's uh, Rebirth run. And that article got me excited for Mira as a character and is acting as a guide for this series of episodes going forward. So please go check that out. So, Lisa, you mentioned in the intro that we are going to be jumping from Brene Brown, who we adored. We really yes. fell for that uh, relationship guru. And now we're tackling Sue Johnson's love sense. So how is this going to fit into our conversation around Arthur and Mira? Well, uh, Sue Johnson is a psychologist and a family therapist who developed this mode of therapy called Emotionally Focused Therapy, or EFT, which I feel like reading this book, I haven't really wrapped my mind around what exactly that means, but it is strongly rooted in attachment theory. Uh, what the shark is that again? <laughs> we came across the term attachment theory when Stan Tatkin was our relationship guru when we were doing our LGBTQ month. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that how we bonded with our mother in our early years relates to how we relate to our relationships as adults, our romantic relationships. Okay. And this was something I found, I didn't talk about it a lot, on the podcast because it was something I really found myself not connecting with. Mm -hmm. He would say, oh, well, either you're like a wave and you like to go towards the shore or you're more like an island and you want to keep people away. And it was one of those things where I just didn't find myself fitting in any one category super cleanly. Like, because in romantic relationships, you know, I tend to be very clingy, um, but in friend relationships, I tend to be a little avoidant. And there are times where I'm feeling super secure and not secure. So I really, I just really didn't identify with it. So I was hoping by pursuing Dr. Sue Johnson and her book that's apparently entirely about attachment theory, I would gain more clarity to what exactly it is. The full title of her book is Love Sense, the Revolutionary New Science of Romantic Relationships. And I was going into this thinking, okay, this is like the Lady Stan Tatkin. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> uh -huh. So um, it's great for our podcast because we do four episodes on Aquaman and Mira, and there are four sections of the book. So I've only read part one entitled 
the relationship revolution. So the entire first section, and in particular the first chapter, Sue Johnson talks about this love revolution or relationship revolution where the perspective on love not only changed in the culture, but changed in the eyes of science. So there was a there was a time when getting in a marriage was more of a uh, business transaction yeah. than really a love transaction. That f- tracks exactly with how it plays between Zabel and Atlantis. Right, they're going into an arranged marriage, mm-hmm. but um, in psychology, love was seen as something that was unmeasurable and therefore inconsequential. Like you can't, they were in a place where they really didn't feel like they could prove that it exists or doesn't exist. Uh So it can't possibly matter. So why Why study study it? it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh So emotions in general were considered not rational, immeasurable. It's all gibberish. Unstudiable. But in the 90s, there was a shift where emotions became an area of legitimate inquiry. And a lot of that has to do with fMRI technology. Now they could actually look at the brain and go, well, this is your brain on anger. This is your brain on fear. This is your brain on love. So it was suddenly more measurable Mm -hmm. and therefore more studyable. And the change was also seen in therapy. So therapists started studying relationships. This sounds crazy nowadays, but like they started um, treating problems in relationships in groups of two or more. So it used to be seen like the Freudian view of psychology is that all issues can be rooted in the psyche of one person. So uh-huh, you really uh-huh, didn't uh-huh. need to have two people in a relationship to fix the relationship. Yeah, no couples therapy. Because it had more to do, the problem was seen to be in the individual, mm-hmm. not in the couple. But um, with the arise of attachment theory, they started going, oh, maybe problems in relationships has to do with something outside of the individual psyche. It actually has more to do with their behavior towards each other. All right, that makes sense to me. I get that. I agree with that. There you go. So the title of the book, Love Sense, refers to that paradigm shift from love being irrational and inconsequential to being an evolutionary imperative. Get it? Love makes sense. Got it. Love sense. Dr. Sue Johnson goes out of her way to tell uh, the entire history of John Bowlby, who was British and the father of attachment theory. The idea that human beings have evolved to be intimately connected with a small circle of people to protect them. The desire to bond, therefore, is innate and an evolutionary consequence to the human brain getting so big that when human beings like like if you have you ever watched a giraffe give birth on YouTube? Uh I mean <laughs> that I 
It does not jump immediately to mind. I well, have watched birthing sequences of animals, but I don't know if I've ever seen a giraffe. Well, giraffes birth. are the best first because of the fall. They fall like six feet. Yeah, long. But long then distance. they like soon after they're born, they're up walking around just like a tiny version of giraffes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, most animals are like that, though. But human not, beings not are not. Humans, no. So when human beings are born, they are useless yeah they're just blobs if you're out in like so in the short term for our ancient ancestor to drop a baby who is like useless uh-huh. it can't fend for <laughs> itself it in the short term it would be better to just leave the baby right uh-huh. but we evolved to love the baby and bond with the baby. So now we find the baby so darn cute that we can't just leave it to die. On the rocks. On the rocks. So we just carry the babies with us and that's why we attach or that's why we bond. His theory changed the prevailing theory of the likes of John B. Watson, who taught mothers not to cuddle or play with their babies. So yeah, I've heard this. So yeah, so the idea was if you coddle your child, you'll have an emotionally stunted adult. So they would say, oh no, don't be too reactive to your baby. Just let your baby cry. This is also the beginning of germ theory. Like don't touch your baby. You're going to get your baby sick, you know? So just let your baby alone. Tough love with your baby. You're going to have a big, tough adult. Um, I was coddled. You, I was super coddled too. <laughs> to our advantage, yeah, it turns out. still coddled. I went to breakfast with my dad today. You did. It was so nice. He paid. That's so nice. Balby's theory instead encourages parents to be highly responsive and cuddly and comforting to their babies. Balby's thesis for the innate bonding referred to the experiment of Harry Hollow's rhesus monkeys. Do you remember talking about this with Dr. Stan Atkin? The idea was that babies will automatically love their mothers because their mothers are the milk machines, right? The oh, mother has the milk. I do not like so that the term. Bab- yeah. <laughs> so the baby's going to want to hang with the mother. Okay. So the way this experiment worked, to recap for any new listeners, is they had little baby rhesus monkeys. They tore them away from the bosoms of their natural mothers. And then they gave them a choice of a wire mother that was not at all cuddly and actually kind of scary looking, but would give milk or a cloth mother that was very cute and cuddly and could be held, but didn't provide milk. And the babies would go to the wire mother for sustenance, but then immediately return to the arms of the more comforting mother. Therefore disproving the the prevailing theory that Babies love their mothers because they give milk. Actually, babies love their mothers because of cuddles, because of bonding. Mm -hmm. That's right. So how does this relate back to romantic relationships? Bowlby conducted controlled experiments where he could observe the type of attachment infants or young children have with their mother. And from that, he made conclusions about how this type of attachment influences their behavior for the rest of their lives. So essentially... Attachment theory is the idea that how we're taught to bond or attach to our primary caregiver, usually a mother, as an infant, defines how we attach in adult romantic love. So essentially, we're all just seeking the high or acting out the trauma of our maternal attachment. This is very interesting when you consider 
the upbringing of both Arthur and Mira. And mm-hmm. and we're going to come back to that. Yeah, oh, are. yes, we are. <laughs> but first, you need to know the three types of attachment. So the first type of attachment is secure attachment. So this is what Dan Tatkin referred to as the secure and functioning relationship. It is the pinnacle. It's what the kind of attachment we all wish we had. So infants with secure attachment grew up with the knowledge that they can count on their main caregiver to be accessible and responsive. And with that kind of confidence, they don't need their caregiver all the time. Okay. As adults, people with secure attachment can develop close relationships without constantly worrying that they'll be betrayed or abandoned. The second type of attachment is anxious attachment. So... People who have anxious attachment generally had inconsistent caregivers when they were growing up. So they have the tendency to be more worried or more clingy. And then the third type of attachment is avoidant attachment. So these are the children whose caregivers gave inconsistent attention or non-existent attention so they would rather avoid creating creating a bond so that they don't get hurt. So that's somebody who wants to stay emotionally distant. They don't really want to have full disclosure with their partner, that kind of stuff. They don't engage. Yeah, right. Though we all have a main attachment style, we can all cycle through various styles and our attachment style is mutable. So we can learn to change it over time. Mm. Our attachment style can influence the kinds of bonds we have in our relationships as well as our resilience when it comes to breakups. So somebody who's who has secure attachment, they, you know, they might hurt for a little while. They bounce back. They bounce back. People who are anxious tend to um, you know, wallow. Th- yeah, more stern and drong and whatever. And then avoidant, they're just like, I really didn't care anyway. And Disconnect. They just, yeah, Disengage. And they, exactly. Now Sue Johnson, as well as Stan Katkin, proposes that some attachment styles are not very compatible. Like, you can't really put two avoidance in a relationship because how can you even tell if they're in a relationship at all, I guess? Two anxious people just make each other more anxious. And Sue says that you can have one anxious and one avoidant, but that can be problematic. So the dream is, whoever you are, you want to hook up with someone with secure attachment because... So one person has to have secure attachment in the relationship? That's how I'm reading it. Do which either see, of us have secure attachment? I think sometimes we do, sometimes, yeah, sometimes we sometimes. don't. Sometimes, okay, all right, okay. And that's what I really didn't like about attachment theory. To mm-hmm. me, it's just too messy like yeah my relationship with my mother can influence my other relationships throughout my life but what about you know my best friend Tina when I was a kid she came up earlier in this episode just today um I consider her not wanting to be my best friend anymore one of the worst breakups of my life hence it keeps coming up on this podcast exactly (laughs) so I feel like we're all attaching and detaching in in some some way or another with people all of the time. And so how 
how can you say that there are these categories when I feel like I'm all of them all of the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of where I am right now, but we're only in part one of Sue Johnson's book. Exactly. And so I just feel like they're putting too much stock into that maternal relationship. Into attachment theory. Exactly, exactly. I, ju- I just don't think that it's like, I'm right. not ready to put all my eggs in that basket. All right, all right. Well, let's keep going then. So I'm reading along. Attachment theory. I'm not for it. I'm not against it. I'm open-minded. Tra-la-la-la-la. And then I hit a huge sex-negative red flag. Oh, no. Oh, no. I miss Brene Brown so much. So she has, like, I've noticed of all of the love guru books that we've read so far, all of these relationship books, they always have like a little like, this is I'm dispelling myths section. So she had in this first chapter, these italicized myths that she is dispelling. And so she says in italics, hot sex doesn't lead to secure love. Rather secure attachment leads to hot sex Uh. and also to love that lasts. Monogamy is not a myth. And I'm like, oh, no, it turns out that love sense is a 300 page argument for monogamy. Mm, mm. Now, to make this clear, we're in a monogamous relationship. Yes, to make this too. I'm looking at you (laughs) to make this clear to our listeners. uh, Brad and I are monogamous. So first and foremost, thank you for the compliment. But we will not be sleeping with you. (laughs) But I can't help but find any idea that tries to put every human being into one box problematic. Mm. Like, I am very content that monogamy works for us, Mm -hmm. but I'm not ready to say that every other person on the planet wants to be in an an exclusively monogamous Well, not only wants, but necessarily needs, needs, right? Absolutely not. And... I'm going to be interested to see over the course of this book how she tries to support this agenda with attachment theory. Because attachment theory always goes back to the relationship with the mother. And while I have one and only mom, I had an open relationship with my mother. I only saw one mom, but my mom was free to mom all of my other siblings. Yeah, not my mom. Not your mom, though. Not an open relationship. <laughs> totally monogamous, monogamous relationship with my mom. Yeah, and mm. and also <laughs> attachment theory separates uh-huh. the bond, the you know, the bond with your mother, your bond to other people, and the romantic love bond uh-huh. from sex. The bond with other people is a separate need than the bond to reproduce. Uh-huh. And this argues that the bond to bond with people um, outweighs often the bond to reproduce because you're not going to have the room to reproduce if everybody doesn't feel safe in the tribe, for lack of a better word. I think I'm tracking with this. Okay. So to me, if the bond of emotional bond and the bond of sex bond are serving two different needs, I don't feel like they're necessarily 
mutual to the point that they cannot be separated. Do you get what I'm saying? But she is saying, Sue Johnson saying, is that she's, they are connected. She's saying that one of the necessary things of a romantic, lifelong, monogamous bond is sex. Uh-huh. Well, her end game is to have re- monogamous relationships yeah. that never, ever, ever break up ever. And does she have then judgment for single people? Well, let's <laughs> see. Let me read to you. Oh no! F- directly from the j- book, and you can tell me how judgy she sounds. Oh no! Pick up any men or women's magazine, and you'll find cover lines blaring "Seduce him." This sexy move works from 20 feet away. 28 things to try in bed or in a hammock or on the floor and sex academy. Get an in giving her an O. Oh boy. In our ignorance, we've made this. physical intimacy the sine, uh-oh, Latin, sine qua non of romantic love. I'll Google that later. Thanks, Doc. As a result, we myopically pour massive amounts of energy and money into spicing up our sex lives. But we have it backwards. It is not good sex that leads to satisfying secure relationships, but rather secure love that leads to good, and in fact, the best sex. Uh, um, can I stop you right there for yeah. a second? So is she saying that if you're experiencing hot sex from the jump, that it cannot possibly lead to monogamy? She is... Not saying that she's saying that people who are having casual sex are not having hot sex. And in fact, the hottest sex is the sex that goes on between my mom and dad. Um, wow. Thanks for that image. (laughs) They're lovely people. Yeah. And uh I want them to be Uh very happy. Don't derail. Don't derail. Um, Okay, so only when you achieve monogamy will you encounter the hottest sex. That's what she's saying. That tracks in our relationship, Lisa. But we don't have, like, <laughs> I, I do. Hold on. We don't have what? Okay. Huh? We have huh? amazing hot sex, okay. but not every single time. Like, we sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, you'll admit, like, there's, like. There are better times than other times. Yeah, okay. Right, right, where you have, like, there's the times when you have the transcendent, soul-uniting, <laughs> uh-huh. mind-blowing sex. And then there's the other times where you have just ordinary Good sex. Okay. Ordinary good sex. Okay. Yeah. All right. it's always uh, good. My ego's fine. Across the board, great. Why is it on my ego? Why am I being such a dude right now? <laughs> Ugh. Continue, Lisa, before we embarrass our listeners anymore. Okay. She continues. The growing craze for internet porn is a catastrophe for healthy love relationships precisely because it negates emotional connection. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> um, I... If you are missing work and you've got blisters on your parts because all you can do is watch internet porn, then you have a problem and it's not internet porn. It's an Inter- addiction. It's yeah. yeah. But, a- but addiction is a very strong word. It's a it's a compulsion if you if you're to that degree. But internet porn is not the problem. You have a problem. So um goes on. It's it is secure attachment. What nature set us up for that makes love persist. So if you have secure attachment, you'll never look at porn or watch movies or do anything. You'll just sit and hold hands with your partner on the couch. 
Trust helps us over the rough places that crop up in every relationship. That is true. Moreover, our bodies are designed to produce a cascade of chemicals that bond us tightly to our loved ones. That is also true. And that was in Stan Tatkin's book as well. And we talked about it on our episode about bingo love, that when you meet someone, you have this rush of endorphins and all of these chemicals that make you bond. And that'll play into this book. Absolutely. But I'd still say that that is separate. (laughs) No, I think it is separate. Just separate. Monogamy is not only possible, it is our natural state. Yeah, okay. Very judgy. Very judgy. Very judgy. And unsupportable from my, like, literally armchair psychology. But... And and just the people that we know in our lives around us, you know, marriage and monogamy is certainly not for everybody. And I think if you do not achieve uh, monogamy, that is not a failing in your life. And if you're trying to fit yourself in a monogamous box and that box doesn't fit, you're going to you're going to harm yourself and you're going to harm others. So I think that we should all go into our relationships being very open with our partners and very open with ourselves with what we really want. And we should be going into this series on Arthur and Mira, uh, recognizing that Sue Johnson's book might not necessarily jive with Brad and Lisa's point of view. No, no. But from what I know about DC comics, Mira (laughs) and Aquaman, pretty great example of a monogamous couple. Uh, yeah, although they've had their ups and downs, like what? all superhero couples. Oh, very interesting. And I'm sure we're going to experience that over the course of this month. Does he have a problem with internet porn? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. I've not encountered Seawater makes terrible oh, lubricant. Lisa, 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 <laughs> Lisa, Lisa. We have gone into some troubled waters. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, let's get into this week's book, Mira, Tidebreaker, an original graphic novel and the first in a new series from DC Comics called DC Inc., which is designed to attract young adult readers. It's written by Daniel Page and illustrated by Stephen Byrne. It looks great. I mean, it's a beautiful book. It, You know, the DC Inc. book, based on this one and the Catwoman book that also just released, it feels like they are going for first seconds. Yeah, absolutely. Right? What we saw with Bloom and uh, what you see with Spinning and books like that. Um, young adult fiction, you know, is certainly nothing new, but the way it's currently marketed is fascinating to an old-timer like myself. Um, you know, I think... Books like J.D. Salinger's A Catcher in the Rye and uh, The Lord of the Flies, they were not originally uh, sold to adolescents, but they were... They uh, resonated with adolescents. They resonated with adolescents and are often considered to be the beginning of the young adult genre. Now, when I grew up, you couldn't go into a bookstore and find a section called young adult. There was the kids section and there was an adult section. Now there were like books like the outsiders and um, the giver stuff like that. But there was no twilight. There was no hunger games. And that like, like when did it begin? When did you start to see a young adult genre in bookshops? To me, I feel like it started with Harry Potter. Yeah, there, probably. There was a certain cachet for carrying one of those volumes around with the, you know, Harry Potter on the cover. And it just seemed like everybody was talking about it. And then that was followed by Twilight. And the, 
young adult fiction became not just something that, you know, preteens and teens read, but adults gravitated towards those stories because of their popularity. Right. And because like something like Harry Potter, kids grew into teenagers into 20-somethings with that book. Absolutely. I didn't. I only read first the first one and half the second one. And I was Same. Like, well, we're too old. If I'm going to read kids' books, I really like the Phantom Tollbooth. <laughs> but, but Lisa, here's my question. Mm-hmm. Young adult fiction uh, or young adult nonfiction, what, what, what does that term mean to you? To me, I think that it's going to be a book that has a little bit of a romantic interest without any overt references and certainly no acts of actual sex. Yeah, well, like that certainly feels like what the cliche of young adult fiction is. Where it's like a light romance or adventure. But shouldn't just young adult fiction just be, you know, no F words and and no penetration? (laughs) I suppose. Maybe there's like a certain level of realistic violence. Aquaman comics are already, for the most part, young adult, right? Right. Very accessible. And so it's interesting to me to take a, a comic book character like Mira and a comic book character like Arthur and then try to fit them into young adult as a genre as seen through the prism of things like Twilight and The Hunger Games. Well, I really feel like, particularly with Mira, it's... Like, it's not going to appeal to adults. Like, this is for teens. Exactly. Like... The um, there's like a sim- simplicity of narrative. Yeah, let's let's get back to that. Okay. <laughs> um, now, young adult does have like a Wikipedia entry. You okay. can read like what they decide. The you know the hive mind that is Wikipedia decides what young adult is. And can I just read that to you? Real oh, quick? please. Uh, and and they define it as um, many young adult novels feature coming of age stories. Uh, these feature adolescents beginning to transform into adults, working through personal problems and learning to take responsibility for their actions. YA serves many literary purposes. It provides a pleasurable reading experience for young people, emphasizing real life experience and problems in easier to grasp ways and depicts societal functions. And, you know, you get all that in Hunger Games. Sure. And the coming of age aspect of you know, early r- romantic love is, you know, key to right. the genre of young adult. That's true. I also think good triumphing over evil. Yeah, is is often seen, uh, at least by the end of the series, if not necessarily in the first and second books or whatever. Yeah. Um, but okay, all right. So Tidebreaker, uh, like I said, written by Daniel Page. Uh, not Daniel, like Danielle. Danielle. Danielle Page. And she's most notable for her own young adult series that subverts L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz. Her first book was Dorothy Must Die, but she did come up through the television industry, working on daytime soaps like The Guiding Light and Days of Our Lives. Now, Stephen Byrne is an Irish-born comic book artist who's worked on everything from Green Arrow to Justice League to Power Rangers to Joss Whedon's uh, Avengers to Joss Whedon's Serenity Comics. Nice. I follow him on Twitter. Yeah, as do I. Uh, I I think he's a phenomenal artist. I think his work fits perfectly for what they're trying to do in aping the style of First Seconds. I think this is a gorgeous book. And if I had to pick only one thing about Mira Tidebreaker that I adored, it would be the art. It's phenomenal. What if I pressed you to say two good things about Mira Tidebreaker? More on that later, Lisa. Let okay. me get through this uh, basic plot of Mira. 
Um, yeah, it's a teen book, right? So it focuses on a teenage Mira who is the princess of Zabel. I say Zebel. Zebel? Zebel, Zabel, Thanos, Thanos. Let's call the whole thing off. No, we got to keep going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the book starts off and we learn that there is a contingent of her populace that believes that that they are living under the thumb of the Atlantean government. And her first act of the book is to deface the Atlantean embassy. And she's chased off by their guards and is eventually rescued by her father's uh, caretaker, not her father's caretaker. Her but, caretaker. But and her trainer. caretaker assigned by her father, uh, Hikari, right? Hikara. Hikara, thank you. And we learned that her father, in an attempt to ally with the royal families of the trench, has betrothed Mira to the hand of Prince Larkin. And her father has tasked Larkin with the mission to kill the long lost Prince of Atlantis. Arthur Curry, who is living in secret on the land above. Mira says, F that. Fish that. Yeah, she says, fish that. She'll go kill Arthur herself, even though she's never stepped foot on dry land, and she's never killed a man before. Um, the rest of the book details her encounter with the landlubbers and her inability to kill Arthur, of course, because he is just too darn way nice. Way too nice. Way, way, way Way nice. too nice. Uh, Lisa, okay. So where do we want to begin with this book? Um, it sounds like you didn't quite gel with the young adultness of the story. To me, I just felt like Mira and the whole story in general was not emotionally complicated enough. I know that killing someone is an emotionally complicated thing, especially when you don't know them, but... I don't know. Everything just seemed too straightforward to well, me. Well, the, uh, the, the pace of the story is rapid, right? Yeah. When Mira uh, finally leaves the sea and pops her head out, she's right there on Amnesty Bay. Arthur Curry's right in front of her. She doesn't have to look for him at all. So the book is just getting you from A to B to C to D at a lightning pace. And you know exactly where it's going. You know that she's not going to kill Aquaman. You know that they're going to eventually fall in love. Yeah, so it goes through the, the basic motions, the cliche motions. I would have appreciated some twists and turns. Yeah, okay. But it's a sweet story. I mean, who doesn't love love? Yeah, and it fits perfectly within the mold of things like, you know, Twilight and Hunger Games, like we were saying. Yeah. And what I like about the book is right at the start, it establishes this tension between the Zebelians and the Atlanteans by going to this protest that Mira's friend is at. And Mira's like communicating through that little uh, cell phone, like wrist Apple watch. phone, Apple yeah, watch. Apple watch, a Dick Tracy watch, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the friend's like, you should come and join the protest. And she's like, no, 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 no. And the reason she's denying her friend is because she's going off to the Atlantean embassy where she's going to deface it with a no Atlanteans wanted symbol. Right. Um, clearly, Mira is very activated by this tension. And as her place as a public figure, as the princess, like her actions have to be kind of um, under the radar, but at the same time, she wants to be effective. Right. She wants to live up to her mother, who was this great warrior queen, and she feels like her dad is positioning her as 
um, you know, a bargaining chip, a bargaining, a bargaining chip. chip. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, put on this pretty dress and play your role. Right. So during this entire, you know, act of vandalism, she has hanging over her tonight. There's a gala. Uh, the Atlanteans are going to be there as well as Larkin, her betrothed from the trench. Right. So she wants to get in kind of this last hurrah before she has to go put on the pretty face and be the princess. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like... um, Do you know what it reminds me of? Ariel from The Little Mermaid. Oh, that's... Well, Well, Ariel... I don't have any recollection of that at all because it was so long ago. Well, she also resents the fact that because she is a princess, she is not in this place to... Um, make her life decisions. Um, one of the greatest lines from um, Part of Your World is, Betcha on land, they understand that they don't reprimand their daughters. Bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand. Right? <laughs> it's like this idea of, um, I am capable of more than just being a princess, and why can't my father see that? I'm impressed that you could pull that lyric right out. Uh, of course I did. I am <laughs> I am part Disney princess, clearly. <laughs> I was thinking something along the lines of how uh, Peter Parker can sometimes resent the persona of Spider-Man, where he uses Spider-Man as this way of finding value uh, for Peter Parker. Right. Like, he has to play the role of Peter Parker, nerdy scientist, but he knows inside he is Spider-Man. And so Mira is playing the role of royal princess, but inside she knows... She's a warrior she's like a her warrior mother. Like her mom. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, Hikara, her caretaker slash trainer, gets her out, helps get her out of the scrape at the embassy by creating more... Damage Chaos, yeah. and more um, violence, and at at risk to her own job because she's a public figure. She is recognizable, and at the end of this book, will bite her in the tuchus. Right, but uh, she gets um, she gets Mira back in time for the gala, and she's also responsible for getting her ready for the gala. So clearly, she has this maternal mentor role yeah over mira and she is very comfortable withholding information from mira's father not telling mira's father exactly what happened and this whole section of the book is so compelling you know the this idea of um rebelling against your station in life that I'm actually a little disappointed that we have to get to the romance story of Arthur and Mira, that she has to take on the mission that her father gave to Larkin to kill the lost Atlantean prince. The purpose of the scene is really to establish that Mira does not respect her father. She does not like the way that her dad is handling the relationship with the Atlanteans. She feels like Zebel is coming across as weak. She feels like her father is coming across as weak. And almost like he is an inferior replacement to her mother, who was the better ruler of Zebel. Right. So if we were going to put this 
put this particular relationship underneath, like, if... I feel like she is being avoidant to an attachment with her father. Mm, mm, And mm. she'd much rather bond with Hikara, who, as a warrior and a soldier, seems a lot more like her mother, a lot more proactive. And... Clearly, she doesn't understand the full scope of what her father is doing. But also, I think that there is something more about that relationship, especially when we later go into exactly how their mother, her mother died, how she can see her father as ineffectual. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And I bet you that if her mom was still around she would not have this idolized opinion of her. But because she's absent, you know, it makes the heart grow fonder. And, and I think that her mother could also um, put, I, I don't think her dad is necessarily doing a good job of putting his agenda into perspective. I think partially because he does want to protect his daughter. He's already lost his wife, right? So we can get from that, like, his his bond, his attachment with his daughter is a little anxious. He's a little clingy. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Which perfectly comes through at the ball during this uh, awkward dating ritual where we're going to put Mira with Larkin. Right. But I I do find their relationship interesting because there is... A bond there. Uh, there's a past, and we see the past in one scene where they're children. Like, they've known each other for a long, long, long time, and they are friendly. It's not like they are antagonistic. He's not the jerk boyfriend. There's a fondness, and you get the sense that she would go for him if it wasn't for this context of, well, he's going to be the king. Right. And you're going to be stuck in this role that you've been playing this whole time as a dress. So pre-Twilight and pre-Hunger Games, this relationship would be a little more antagonistic. Larkin would be, you know, the James Spader jerky character who's kind of hot, but is a total reprehensible monster. And I feel like Larkin is filling the Jacob role of Twilight, where he's a good dude, kind of. He's got problems, but he's a possible mate for Mira, except we know she's destined for Edward. I mean, Arthur Curry. <laughs> yeah, she she wants the bad boy. She doesn't want uh, the wolfie that'll keep her warm at night. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So I thought, that I like, I like this dynamic. And again, you know, what I enjoyed so much about this and what the DC Inc. thing seems to be doing is embracing the modern idea of YA. Larkin and Mira's entire relationship is embodied by the ear cuff. Yeah. It's she she looks at the ear cuff and she goes, this ear cuff is super cute. I would love to wear this ear cuff. Uh-huh. But he says he says things to me like, oh, you're going to be by my side. And oh, and then she realizes what the ear cuff symbolizes, And then the ear cuffs is back yeah, on the ground. It's not an ear cuff. It's a handcuff. Exactly, but not kinky and fun, like <laughs> oppressive. No, yeah, super oppressive. So let's skip ahead a little bit. Okay. Uh, 
Mira overhears her dad assigning yeah. Larkin the task of killing Arthur. And Mira becomes very jealous. The first thing she does is that beautiful dress that she wore to the gala. Rip up that dress. <laughs> she does not like physical manifestations of her bondage. Yeah. No, no ear cuff, no dress. <laughs> she rips up the dress, even though it was gorgeous, and everybody told her that her mother <laughs> wore a dress like that. She's like, no, stitches. And well, she wanted that task. She wished her. She wished her. She wanted a task. Yeah, and when she hears that Larkin gets that task, she would have liked her dad to have given her that task. Exactly. So she's about to make a run for the land, but Hikara finds her, and uh, she tells Hikara, I guess, what she's up to. And um, Hikara gives her the per permission, basically. Right. Well, yeah, first, like, you know, Mira goes on this tirade, like, you know, when is it my choice to choose what I want to do? And, you know, you got to choose who you are. My mom got to choose who she is. And she, and she has this very vivid memory of playing tea party with her mom while her mom was in full warrior gear. It Like, in her memory, her mother was the woman who had it all. She mm -hmm. had a family. Mm -hmm. She got to be a warrior. I love and all she, this stuff And she her. got to be a mother. It's, these flashbacks are great. Right. And... Hikara adds more fuel to this fantasy fire because Hikara was like, well, you know that me and your mom actually had a mission mm. on land to find this Arthur Curry character. And we didn't, we weren't able to pull it off because. Of you. Yeah, because, <laughs> because. Her mother was too preoccupied with being a mother. Right. Let's keep in mind that Arthur Curry at this time was also just a child. Right, a baby. Yeah, he was the boy equivalent to Tea Party age. He may have had tea parties. That was very gendered of me. Um, but she gives her the advice of follow your instinct. You have tides inside of you and you work best when you go with the flow and Zabellians don't kill innocents. And Hakara gives her permission, even though she doubts that she can do it, because Mira has not killed anyone before, and taking a life is serious business. And I assume that Hakara has some experience in that. Right, right. She does it under the guise of, like... I could not stop your mother from doing what she wants, wanted to do. So I clearly cannot stop you from doing what you want to do. And so off Mira goes to swim to Amnesty Bay. And before she goes, Hikara goes like, well, while you're gone, I'm taking responsibility. I'm turning myself in for the vandalism that right. you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is something guilt, that comes guilt, up. Guilt. Yeah, that comes up later, obviously. And then so she swims to Amnesty Bay. She knows exactly where Arthur Curry is, pops her Luckily, he just happens to be sitting on the beach. He's just sitting on the beach. And I guess, though, that we should talk about how we're introduced to Arthur yeah. Curry because we see a scene before this, before oh, yeah. Mira gets here, and Arthur's with his girlfriend. Ellery. Ellery. Rhymes with celery. Ellery that rhymes with celery in a truck, and they're driving, you know, they're driving to the lighthouse, and she wants to make out with him. While he's driving. While he's driving. And that's dangerous. And he doesn't do dangerous things. That's right. So, like, I just thought, here is our introduction to 
Aquaman, Arthur Curry. And he's like, no kissing here. Eyes on the road. Ten and two. Ten, Ten and, and two. two. <laughs> That's right. It's just like... It's a nice subversion of the Aquaman hero. Well, Arthur must have some kind of hero streak because when he heard Mira flapping about in the water, faking yeah. drowning, mm -hmm. he hops on a boat. He doesn't, he doesn't dive into the water because he's promised his dad never to go into the water. Yeah, his dad knows, because he does remember mating with an Atlantean. How <laughs> can you forget? <laughs> that he's got to keep Arthur away from the water so that he can keep him out of danger because once he gets in the water, he's going to realize what a special flower he is. Right, right, right. All of his powers will reveal themselves and... He'll swim away from Amnesty Bay never to come back yeah. to his sweet old dad. Um, but he pulls Mira out of the water. She's like, no hospitals, please. And he's like, well, I know what I should do with this extremely hot girl. Hide her where nobody will find her in my bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that Mira could right there, pull out her Zabellian knife but, and stab him to death. But because she just came out of the water, she's all weak. Because right. she has to switch over from using her sea gills to using her land gills. Yeah, Hakara did warn her that there would be a, a physical transition that would need to happen before you get your land legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. then she can't, she doesn't have access to any of her cool powers. But I mean, like, it like doesn't that. take that much strength to jab a knife into a, the fleshy part of a body. Yeah, I guess just a little momentum. Yeah, <laughs> but she doesn't do it. Uh, and Hikari did warn her not to become too emotionally engaged with her prey. No, that's not what no? Hikara said. Hikara said, like, once you get to know this guy, you're not going to kill him. And she's like, why would I get to know him? He's an Atlantean. And Hikara's like, well, you know what? It, you might just get to know him. That's right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good memory. Good memory. Thank you. So while Mira is bedridden, regaining her powers, she just so happens to have her own little Martian manhunter new frontier moment where she's flipping through <laughs> the channels and she's like, oh, humanity, so sad. They're just like us. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, it's gonna become pretty hard for her to continue the bloodthirst. And, and Arthur is like, well, the people around here are not that bad. We mostly have just good stuff here, but it is, seems like there's something new, awful thing every day. And, and Arthur has to go to his job. Right. And that means he can't leave Mira in his bedroom. So they go to the boardwalk together and Mira gets to watch Arthur interact with his people. Yeah, and her finger is like inches from the blade at all times. <laughs> she is like, she is like at moment's notice, ready to stab. Yeah, slash, slash, slash. <laughs> but she doesn't, she's always stopped. Something either gets in her way, something interrupts her, or, or, or she just doesn't have the strength. But at the boardwalk, I think what's so important about this is how insanely nice Arthur appears to be because she has apparently never encountered such a sweet soul like Arthur Curry. Well, she does this thing where like, he's like, well, this is where I work. I work at the climbing wall. And she's like, well, I have some other business elsewhere. Not at all suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Like you ju literally just washed up. You're half able to walk, but yeah, sure. Go do your business. Her stories later. don't make any sense, uh, but, but she is really pretty. He is extraordinarily <laughs> trusting of this stranger um, covered in bruises. Um, but she 
she just kind of stalks him from afar mm-hmm. as he does this like marathon of Boy Scout behavior, like a uh, high fiving kids and helping little grannies across the street. And she's like, she's skeptical. She's like, there is no way an Atlantean could possibly be this sweet. It must be part of his cover. So she was going to kill him in the car ride over to the boardwalk. And that's when she realized that Arthur routinely brings these two little kids to the boardwalk with him. Yep. It's like, 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 who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the her time at the boardwalk ends with, there is some bad stuff that happens at Amnesty Bay, clearly, because he is circled by a gang of muggers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A coven of muggers. Yeah. And uh, she's like, nobody's going to hurt Arthur but me. And she <laughs> defeats them via fisticuffs. Yeah, right before she... Uh, defeats those muggers, she's contemplating killing Arthur using her water powers. Oh, yeah, that's right. She's, like, she has the ability to, like, pull water over him like a sheet. Yeah, and I guess drown him on land. Uh, But the muggers, again, interrupt her. She's always getting interrupted from her murder plans. Like, why would he be drowned by water? Uh, well, maybe she turns the water into daggers. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know I've how that's going to work. I've never seen any kind of evidence of dagger water. Dagger water? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, he's <laughs> like, you saved my life. Uh, let's have dinner. And she's like, oh, yeah. And she doesn't realize that she's dropped her watch, her little like magic like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. phone watch. Yeah, which really doesn't amount to anything. Super doesn't. Super doesn't. And why do they have to, you know, beat up on poor Arthur if Mira's just going to be laying Atlantean technology all over the place? They need to get one of those little, like, lollipop beeper things. You know what I'm talking about. Metal detectors. Metal detectors. (laughs) Lollipop beeper things? Yep. Okay. All right. So from there, we do get to finally meet Arthur's dad properly. Turns out. Or Mira does. uh, Turns out also super nice. Very nice guy. But after dinner, that's where the magic happens, where they start bonding over stories about their relationships with their parents. Because Arthur assumes, like, there's this young woman. She's covered in bruises. She doesn't want to talk about her past, that she must be running from something. And so he comes, like, he hears the way she talks about her dad, and she assumes that her dad has been abusing her. And she gets to talk a little bit about her, like, yeah, he just sees me as a princess, Like, it sounds figuratively, but she's talking literally, but Arthur doesn't know. Well, this is the moment where she finally goes, you know, this guy's a good dude. I can't kill him. You know, she was going to murder this guy before the mugging, and now she's all mixed up. Yeah, so, like, Arthur reciprocates her opening up about her relationship with her dad by talking about his relationship with his dad, and how he has this kind of nebulous feeling that he's meant to do more. And the entire time he's like tell, confessing all of the super personal stuff, she's like, should I push him off the lighthouse or should I not push him out the lighthouse? <laughs> and really it comes down to uh, what Hikara said. Like he's, he's, he's an innocent guy. And so um, finally uh, Arthur talks a little bit about um, his dad and how his dad is so paranoid about him going into the water because that's how they lost his mother. He assumes that his mother drowned. And um, he takes the entire 
attachment theory thing and boils it down to one sentence, a one sentence about his dad. And the sentence is, sometimes when people are scared, they hold on too tight. That's anxious <laughs> attachment. So his dad has this anxious attachment over his son, especially considering the knowledge he has about his son, which Arthur doesn't even know anything about. When you were reading this book and that line happens, did you just do like a giant fist <laughs> pump? <laughs> it's like, oh, thank God, there's something in this book to talk about. But I, I do think this really is a story about... Are you going to be the person you're going to be because of your parents? Or are you going to be the person you're going to be despite your parents? And that's a very teenager, YA way to sure. think. But um, it is engaging. Yeah. But does the book ultimately answer or does the book ultimately fall on one side or the other? Not really. Not really. Yeah. Which it's I mean, that's because it's impossible really to decide who puts you on your path, you or the generation before. That doubt is what's essential to humanity. Right. Especially if you are the type of human that is part of a monarchy. Yeah, That's yeah. kind of really... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very Game of Thronesy. I can't believe you brought up that show in my presence. I'm sorry. It's over. I never want to hear about it again. Neither do I. Anyway, <laughs> Larkin comes back. She holds the cuffs. She tosses the cuffs. He says, I'm giving you one night. If Arthur's not dead by tomorrow, then I'm taking over. But I think you're okay. So you can you can do it if you want to do it. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And so um, they, like, she ends up standing on the edge of a cliff, like every beauty lady mm -hmm. ends up on mm -hmm. the edge of a cliff. And uh, he goes to confess his love. And she's like, okay. And so they start a little smooch action and she takes that moment to jump off the cliff <laughs> with him and pull him into the water. But it's in the water where the magic happens. Exactly. And so they start water punching yeah. or she starts water punching and he's like, like, what, what is going on? <laughs> and then he um, inadvertently calls a pod of whales. Yeah. And it's a whale that he remembers from his youth. Wait, we get a flashback to all these uh, 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 humpbacks that had like beached themselves. And back then when he was a little wee child, he put his hands up against it. He did like a mind meld like Spock in Star Trek. Well, four. he essentially tells the whale, like, you better get back in the water. And the yeah. whales is like, OK. But the whales had, were originally attracted to the, him because he was oh, at the lighthouse. because he called them he, yeah. by accident. Yeah. And, and, and now he's. Back with the humpback whale from his youth. It's the same one. They're friends. Oh, what if like constantly his entire life there were like all of these dead fish on the shore and everybody's like, what is this about? I, d I bet you there are at least a whole school of fish that are just hanging out that are, that are attracted to the lighthouse area. And they, they go there like Mecca. You know, he's like their religious figure. <laughs> I'm going to read that book. I'm going to read about those fish. <laughs> so do I, actually. Um, but yeah, okay. So now he's underwater. He realizes that he... Has got these powers. Has got this power that he has a connection, that there's something more going on with his life. But he doesn't get any time to process those feelings because no. he pops out on the beach. Larkin is there. Uh, Larkin kind of tells Arthur, like... I'm really going to enjoy killing you now, now that my girlfriend has a crush on you. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
And that's when Mira gives him the skinny on what's actually happening here. Arthur confronts his father. His father's like, check out this collection of <laughs> Atlantean armor behind the bookcase, son. You are a prince. And, you know, you got to take this trident. He's like, I can't take this trident. And Mira's like, I'm not touching that trident. That's an Atlantean trident. And so the two of them go back to the lighthouse. They stand on that cliff face and they're like, look, we, we got to do something. You got to stop running from who you are. And Arthur's, you know, he, he's known all his life that there was something off about him. And this is what the answer is. So he's going to take that plunge that he has denied himself. He's going to go into the ocean with Mira. They dive off the cliff. They have like probably the best page of the entire book. The way Stephen Byrne shows uh, Mira upside down, Arthur uh, right side up and they're floating together. Like Spider-Man and Mary Jane. Very much like Spider-Man and Mary Jane kisses, in except the Sam for, Raimi film. Yeah, except for it is... Mirror on top. Mirror on top, very sexy. Yeah, and, and, like I love that page. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. But it, that smoocharoonie does not come to fruition because who's off in the horizon? It is an army coming towards yeah, them. Yeah, it's uh, his mom riding a giant crab. That is a pretty cool mom. <laughs> Very cool, Bob. And so now here the Atlanteans are. They're, they're come to rescue the lost prince who's in danger from the Zebelians. And it's a full-on war. Like, it, this, it's, this is going to happen. Look what Mira has done. She has sparked... A uh, tremendous battle. Not only is it happening, it's happening on land in Amnesty Bay. Yeah, and lots of onlookers. <laughs> there's a, this beautiful moment. First, one second, a kid is like kicking sand in Arthur's face, like, you're a freak, merman. <laughs> yeah. And then the next, like almost the very next panel, all of the neighbors are like, we're with you, Arthur. We're not running and hiding. And so like this book could climax with the Battle of Winterfell, Lisa. <laughs> but instead, you know, the, the kids, Arthur and Mira, uh, have to come to their senses and convince the adults that, you know, that 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 they that that harmony exists. So like Mira has been fighting harmony between Zabel and Atlantis her entire life. She came to Amnesty Bay to strike the first blow in a mighty war for Zabellian freedom. And now here she is convincing these two parties to put their arms down because right. she loves a boy. Oh, that's so sweet. But Alana's like, I'm not having it. You're a Zabellian. You're never going to be a daughter of Atlantis. It's probably you're seeking revenge because it turns out Arthur Curry's mom killed Mira's mom dun, dun, dun. in this kind of ritual battle, the yeah. battle like, like a gladiatorial combat. Exactly. That ended with Zebel losing to Atlantis. So the entire situation that Zebel is in being under the heel of Atlantis came down to Arthur's, Arthur's mom. mom killing Mira's mom. mom. And that's pretty heavy stuff that the book really doesn't want to deal with outside of, you know, like this is the truth. And, like, that could be the start of a whole new book. Right. But it's the end of this one. Rios, Mira's dad, rolls up. He's got his army, but he's saying Zebel wants peace. Zebel doesn't want to go to war with Atlantis because clearly it would lose. Yeah, nice change of heart. Right. <laughs> but Atlanta is like, 
how could you say that Zebel wants peace? There was vandalism yeah. at the embassy. And you sent Larkin to kill my boy. She doesn't know no, that. But that, she, that that's is what true. I know. Well, we know that Rios is a big time <laughs> Zebel wimp backstabber, a completely weak person, just like his daughter thinks. But Atlanta's like, what about that vandalism? And Mira is like, I'm responsible for that vandalism. And it was kind of an accident, which is not true. And uh, yeah, I I'll take responsibility <laughs> for that. Just a complete evasion slash lie slash some kind of middle of some kind of guilt. She's like, I'm a princess. What are you going to do? That was my vandalism. And um, so Atlanta is like, okay, like if you'll take responsibility for that act of vandalism, I guess we'll all just go back into the sea and everything will remain as it is. Except for poor Ellery. Poor Ellery, heartbroken. <laughs> heartbroken. She has to stare at Arthur, uh, lovingly, you know, look into the eyes of Mira. For moments, she thought she had the cutest boy in Amnesty Bay. And Mira and Arthur make out on the beach before Mira goes back to her side of the ocean. Right. I, I love all of the stuff that happens after. So, like, the first thing Atlanta does is like, okay, Mira, you're coming with me. Arthur, I'm not ready for you yet. You stay here. And Arthur is like, no, Mira, we're deeply in love. We have to stay together. I don't like this idea about you going back into the ocean and accepting responsibility for this crime. And I'm going to be, I, I'm just not that kind of person. She's like, it's going to be totally cool. It's going to be a slap on the wrist. Nobody's really going to care. You're going to come to me in time. Our relationship is fine. And even after she tells him that, he's like, I can't stand this. We cannot be separated now that we have this deep connection. But she goes anyway. She goes anyway. Complete anxious attachment. He cannot handle it. He is so ineffectual. Like, by the end of this book, he is not Aquaman. But Mira is Mira. Yeah. Which is what I think ultimately really cool about this book. Well, she she displays the behavior of someone with secure attachment. She comforts him. She says, we're going to be fine. I trust in our bond. When we're ready, when the time is right, we'll be together and everything will be the same. But when you get to the end of that book, when you turn to that last page and she's going off triumphantly knowing who she is and we see the back of Arthur Curry you know, scurrying down the beach. Do you want these two to eventually come together as a couple? No. No, no, no. But, I like, Arthur Curry has a lot of growing to do. Mm -hmm. we, we kind of glossed over the fact that his dad had been lying to mm -hmm, him. Mm -hmm. His dad, who he had this secure attachment with, he was so close, and he found out that... Only in, like, the last 20 minutes... Uh, 20 minutes, the last 20 pages of this book. That his entire conception... And his relationship with his mother, like he's been growing up thinking his mother was dead because of an accident. And the only person that can keep him safe is his father. That's got to do some real damage to his ability to securely attach with someone. There you have it. That is Mira Tidebreaker. Yeah, a story about love uh, and attachment. Yeah. Okay. So, Lisa, let's end this episode. Um, what are you pulling from this book? How are you relating it to Sue Johnson's uh, love sense? Uh, 
what are you bringing into your own relationship with me? What's going on? I like reading Love Sense and thinking about how I attach with people. And then, of course, looking at all of the different kinds of attachment Mira goes through with throughout the book, like with Hikara, she has a very secure attachment with her dad. She has an avoidant attachment with Arthur. She finds herself in this place of having a secure attachment with him as he's going off while he's displaying like a very anxious attachment. I think that there is value to looking at different relationships I find myself in and going like, Am I being avoidant bonding with this person? What am I really afraid of? Because attachment doesn't have to... Be romantic. It doesn't have to be romantic or it doesn't have to be paternal, maternal, right? It it doesn't have to be... Like, it's just in everyday life, we're we're all negotiating. Who do I want in this intimate circle that is close to me? And I also think, like, not necessarily... Like, in the course of our relationship... Obviously, we've gone through different forms of attachment. I feel like now, after over 10 years of a a relationship, almost 10 years of marriage, we have a very secure attachment. But there are little things that make me anxious. Like, I do feel threatened um, by the idea of another nerd girl (laughs) who knows more about movies than comics and comics than me coming in and sweeping you off your feet. That's so silly, Lisa. I know, it's I so know. Ridiculous. But remember when you were a manager at Barnes & Noble? Uh-huh. I did not like hearing about you interviewing women for a job at the store. Do you uh, remember that? Yeah, I do remember that, but you would like it's not like you it's not like I was going home and telling you, oh, I just interviewed a bunch of hot ladies. I know. You would I, ask me what I did today, and then I would tell you, oh, I did some interviews. And you say, well, did you hire anybody? I'd be like, yeah. And you're like, who'd you hire? And I'd be like, well, I hired this girl. And you'd be like, is she pretty? <laughs> yeah, very anxious. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I don't know where that anxiety comes from. Clearly my mom somehow. Okay, all right. It's all, all of those right. other siblings raining in on the love. we've been married 10 years. Yes. I haven't cheated on you. Never once. Not once. Never even thought about it. Good gravy. I'm pretty great. All right. Well, <laughs> I don't even know where to go from here. What about do you, what about attachments in your life? How do you feel about your attachment with your parents? How do you feel about your attachment with me? Lisa, we're at an hour and 23 minutes <laughs> and you want me to get into Let's my attachments into with it. my parents, lie down on the couch? I think that this is going to be a continuing conversation over the course of these four episodes because I think over the range of Mira and Aquaman's relationship, I think we're going to see all kinds of bonding. Sure. And, I mean, the bonding might change under the pens of different writers or creators. So We mentioned it a little bit on this episode already, but, you know, my relationship with my parents was very different than your relationship with your parents. I'm an only child. You have many siblings. Uh, I was, for the most part coddled or spoiled or choose whatever, you know, word that brings the most negative uh, connotation to it. <laughs> it's not true. I had a wonderful, blissful relationship uh, with my folks. Um, but it, it is a very tight, uh, open, honest relationship. 
Where I tend with my parents to be a little bit more avoidant. I like to keep, you know, certain information. I like to carp compartmentalize yeah. my closeness. Papa Gullickson never would have hid the armory of Atlantean stuff behind a bookcase. No, he would have had it over the mantle. Yeah, yeah. okay. All right, that's enough for this week. Uh, I'm uh, pretty curious to see where this goes uh, in the coming weeks, Lisa. I'm excited. I think it's going to be a fun, interesting month. You are our Aquaman. We are but fish. What? Where are you taking us next? What is our next book? Uh, our next book is going to be one that we've already discussed on this episode. We're going to the new 52, the relaunch of Aquaman number one through six, written by Jeff Johns and illustrated by Ivan Rice. It's a fun one. It's a, like, I love it. Lisa loves it. Uh, I'm excited to reread it. I think this is going to be my third time going through it. Um, I think Mira is super cool in this book. She, you get to see more of her rad powers. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yes, next week, bring your copies of Aquaman New 52 with us. And your baggage. And your baggage. Okay, Brad, yeah. let's get the shark out of here. <laughs> yeah. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Of course, follow the podcast at CBCC Podcast. And you can email us now, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us cues. Send us cues. We'll answer them. Lisa. Yes. Our listeners, they can find you. On the ocean or online? Where? 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 Not in the ocean. Not in the ocean. Not for any particular reason. Okay. Um, I'm always accepting words of affirmation <laughs> at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by subscribing to us on Spotify, Pod, Podbean, yeah. iTunes. Mm-hmm. And if you're feeling especially generous, you can give us the gift of five stars on the iTunes ratings and you can leave us a nice review. It would make us feel nice. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.